Well, folks, I promised last week that uh, this week we were going to focus on the issue of what the Bible has to say about tithing. And this is a pretty scary topic because I'm sure you're all thinking, uh-oh, here we go again. Somebody wants me money. You know what? I get letters in the mail three or four times every week from people who want my money. And uh, it's not uncommon in church to be asked for your money. But before you hand over your money, I really think you need to get a pretty good perspective on what the Word of God has to say about our relationship with money and giving. As you know, this month we're focusing on generosity. Uh, last week, we spent some time talking about generosity from a biblical perspective. And uh, today, I want to focus on tithing. And I want to approach it by actually going through the history of tithing as it is recorded in the Word of God. And then I want to follow up next week with a discussion about how we might apply the principles that we have a look at today in the context of the contemporary church and the 21st century. So if I f offend you today, please come back next week because I probably won't offend you next week. So what I want to do is to start way, way back with the very first ever record of tithing and uh, let me in a sense apologize in advance there's quite a bit in today's discussion point and that's why we only had three songs at the beginning gives me a little bit more talking time and I promise we won't do this very often but I really think it's important to go through all of this at once just to help you get it settled uh, in your mind so we go back way way back into Genesis chapter 14 we're dealing here with Abram before he became Abraham. So this is before God had established his covenant with Abraham. Now you know that Abraham and Lot went their separate ways. In fact, Abraham allowed Lot to have the choicest land and he went off to, to farm and Abraham went in the other direction. But there was a time when a group of five kings actually battled against a whole bunch of other kings. I think it was three other kings. The three kings lost to the five kings and Lot and all his possessions were taken by the victorious five kings. That plus Everything in Sodom, all, all, everything that they owned was taken as spoils of the battle. Now, because Abram cared about Lot, his nephew, he assembled a fighting force of his own and he actually went and got back everything. He won the battle. He got back all the wives, all the children, all of the possessions and it turns out 
that Abram met up with Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, and priest of God most high. Very significant here. Firstly, in all likelihood, Abram and Melchizedek were acquainted. So this wouldn't have been the first time that Abram was uh, doing any kind of business with Melchizedek. Second point here is that Melchizedek was king and priest. That's important. He was king and priest. And uh, he brought out a royal banquet that he shared with Abram. I know the Bible says bread and wine, and, and we might think, well, we do bread and wine every Sunday as part of our Sunday Connect. Oh, I don't think that's a banquet. The little dry cracker and the grape juice that pretty crunchy though when you got it in front of a microphone it doesn't seem to be much of a banquet does it but in the context of the times that would have been a pretty decent sort of meal now on this occasion the bible records that abram gave to melchizedek a tenth of all the spoil, all the goods that he had retrieved from the victorious kings. And he offered that up to Melchizedek. Now his name means my king is righteous or legitimate. And again, this has a lot of significance, of course, because later on we shall see that Melchizedek is referred to as a type of Jesus. Now, Abram tithed out of the spoils of war. There's no record in the Bible that he tithed out of the increase of his flocks or his herds. And there's no biblical record of him ever having done it a second time. We don't know. He may have. We simply don't know. So Abram's tithe is often referred to as the, the first tithe ever recorded in the word of God and that is certainly true there was another person who committed to tithing seldom referred to you don't really see Jacob mentioned all that much in relation to tithing but Jacob was a pretty interesting sort of dude because in obeying God he strikes a deal and uh, I'd recommend that you read a lot of verses before and after every time the word tithe appears because it places it in proper context but uh, Jacob essentially did a deal with God if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on then of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you now why would he have done this he'd heard from God God had actually sent him on a journey then he seeks to do a deal with God well as it turns out in eastern culture at that time in history a lot of people did deals like this if you were a little bit weaker than the kings or the lords surrounding you you would go to them and do a deal and the standard was that you would 
offer to give them a tithe of all your produce, 10% of all your produce, in return for their protection. So to get the protection of the stronger one, you would offer up a tithe. So Jacob would have been well aware of this, and he also would have understood that there is not a lord or a king on the earth as strong, as powerful, as mighty as God. So him being a smart fella thinks, well, instead of doing a deal with one of the lords or one of the kings around me, I'll do a deal with God instead. So this is what he does. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, then of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Some commentators argue that this establishes the tithe as part of the Abrahamic covenant of grace. But note that in the biblical record, there is no evidence that Jacob actually ever tithed. There's no evidence to suggest that he actually followed through on the deal he struck with God. We don't know. We just don't know. Well, then let us move on to the law. So we've got one example at least of tithing before the Abrahamic covenant, before the law. Jacob, of course, was before the law. And then we get into the law of Moses and we find there references to a law of tithing. Now, a lot of commentators talk about there being three different tithes. And we'll work through each one of these tithes systematically now. The first tithe is the tithe that most of us are familiar with and you'll find it referred to in Leviticus chapter 27 verses 30 to 33 and in Numbers chapter 18 verses 21 to 32 and again I strongly recommend that you do a lot of reading around those verses so you can place it in to some kind of context. Now the principle here of the first tithe was that one-tenth of the produce or the increase of the land and every tenth animal in herd or flock that passes under the rod is holy to the Lord. Now what that meant was that one-tenth of the, the fruit, the grain that was produced from the land, that was actually to be given over to or dedicated to God. It was a sacred piece of production. And so, to in the case of the um, animals born in your herd or your flock. Now, passing under the rod was a kind of stock take exercise. So, the, the farmer, uh, the, the shepherd, for example, would actually count the sheep, and one of his weapons was the rod, and he just used the rod to count each sheep through. And this law of tithing said that every tenth animal had to be given over for the tithe. Now, because 
the principle here was that one-tenth became sacred, it became holy to the law, you couldn't choose not to do it except under certain circumstances. And if you did, you had to redeem it by adding a fifth to the tithe. So in a sense, if, if for some reason you weren't able to meet the tithe at a particular point in time, when you got around to doing it, you had to add another 20%. Now, the, the 20% was a very common measure of recompense in Old Testament law. You will see that if you damage somebody's animal or crop, the standard repayment was the value of that which you had ruined or destroyed or damaged plus another 20% or another one-fifth. So that was the standard that was established in the law when you damaged or destroyed something that belonged to somebody else. So the purpose of this tithe was really to remind us of our relationship with God. Its primary purpose was to remind us of our relationship with God. And it wasn't just to sit there and do nothing. It was actually to be brought to the Levites as their inheritance. Now, as you may be aware, that the Levites were responsible for looking after the tabernacle. So they, if you like, were administrators. They were cleaners. They were fixer-upperers. Everything to do with the tabernacle was the responsibility of the Levites. And because God wanted them to be wholly dedicated to their vocation, he forbade them from owning land. Now in Israel, your sustenance depended upon ownership of land. It was an agricultural society. If you didn't own land, you would starve. But because God wanted the Levites to be wholly focused on their calling, he forbade them from owning any land. And so God said that this tithe was to be given to the Levites as their inheritance. Okay? And that was because they weren't allowed to own land, so they couldn't produce crops or animals in order to provide food for themselves. Now, the Levites themselves were not let off the hook in terms of tithing either because they were to take a tithe out of what was given to them and to give it to the priests who were ministering to the Lord on behalf of the people. And that's referred to in the Old Testament as the heave offering or in Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew or in Hebrew, the trumah, all right? So the truma was one-tenth of one-tenth. The Levites also came under the discipline of the first tithe. So that's the first tithe. And this is the tithe that is most often referred to in church contexts these days. But that's not the end of the story. Because in the Old Testament, there was a second tithe. And you'll find it referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. Now, under the law, there were 
a number of festivals that Israel was to observe. There were three major festivals or feasts every year and everybody had to travel uh, to the tabernacle or later to the temple for the purposes of those three feasts. The three were the Pesach or Passover, the Shavuot or weeks or Pentecost and Sukkot, tabernacles, tents or booths. I have no idea if that's the way you pronounce them in Hebrew because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But those three festivals, of course, we all know. We know about Passover because of its significance in terms of Easter. We know about Pentecost because we celebrate Pentecost Sunday and we also know about the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths and that was to remind Israel that God had saved them out of slavery in Israel and brought them through the desert into the promised land. Now for the purpose of these feasts, God said, set aside another tithe, another 10% of the fruit, that is the increase of the land and of the increase in your flocks. What were you to do with it? You were to rejoice. I love this. Rejoice in all to which you have put your hand. That's how you get stuff out of the land, of course. You put your hand to work. And through that comes increase. You and your households in which the Lord has blessed you. So what was to happen was that for each of these three festivals, you and your whole household, and that include your wife, perhaps more than one if you had more than one, all your children and all of your servants as well, plus, you know, the donkeys and everything that you needed to carry all the stuff to the tabernacle or the temple. And there you would engage in a great feast. Now, again, there's a purpose in this tithe. It's not just a discipline that requires you to give over something that you own these three festivals in particular were to remind Israel of highly significant events in their relationship with God but also they were to bring households together for the purpose of fellowship to build strong families and it is perhaps significant that we're talking about this on Mother's Day when we remember the contribution that mums make to building strong families. So this is the second tithe, a tithe which is set aside for the purpose of feasting, festivals, rejoicing, being glad, taking time with family. Then we come to what's known as the third tithe, sometimes called the tithe of the third year. You'll find it um, written down in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 to 29. Uh, this tithe was to be set aside for the Levites, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that they may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. 
Again, look, these words can just trip off our tongues so easily. You can pick up your Bible and you can read it a hundred times. But this is saying that you must exercise generosity toward those, one, who do not have access to land, and two, who are poor or oppressed. So the tithe of the third year or this third tithe was to be made available in your locality for the Levites, for the stranger, sometimes referred to as sojourner, depending on the translation, the fatherless or orphans and the widow. It's significant. Why was this to be done? So they might have something to eat and through that be satisfied. And for the tither, blessing follows. God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. That expression appears many, many times in the Old Testament. You know, God generally does not just throw down manna from heaven or if you whinge enough, send your quails. That happened when Israel was in the wilderness, but most of the references to God's provision come through the work of your hand. And you know that I'm very big on the importance of work in the kingdom of God. Note that this tithe was to remain in the local community. And importantly, I think we must note that there is some ambiguity here since this tithe might be the first tithe distributed differently in the third year. A lot of people say, well, it's a separate tithe, but if you actually read the text, it talks about of the tithe every third year or after the third year, the tithe is to be set aside for the Levites who have entitlement anyway, but additionally the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Uh, at home, I've actually got all 613 laws that make up the Torah. And uh, according to the rabbis who have put this together, the tithe of the third year wasn't actually a separate tithe at all. It was the first tithe dealt with differently in the third year. So you can read what the Bible says and make up your own minds. It's not really my desire to dictate to you how you will understand it but can I just say no matter what you read or who you listen to always go back to the word of God and pray that he will reveal to you the truth of his word as for me I am inclined to believe that because if you read the Bible naturally I am inclined to believe that it was the first tithe dealt with differently in the third year but I really don't see that we get very far by splitting hairs anyway I should mention first fruits as well because in many discussions about tithing uh, first fruits is mentioned too the the principle here is that the first fruits of your crops uh, your olive trees your your grapevines was to be brought to the Lord as a sacrifice and so too the firstborn among herds and flocks 
Now, it wasn't intended to be a major sacrifice. It was intended to be recognition of God actually bringing Israel into the promised land. So the very first time first fruits or firstborn was ever implemented, it was on the occasion of Israel coming into the promised land. And in fact, in, 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 in the um, passage in uh, Deuteronomy, it kind of looks as if it was only ever meant to be done once. That, that was the first time, the first um, crop, the first of, of the um, babies of the herds and flocks after they came into Israel. But if you look at Nehemiah, it's fairly obvious that it was something that was intended by God to be practiced on an annual basis. So the first, the first fruits were only ever intended to fill a basket that you could carry basically on one, on one arm. So you, you know those old-fashioned wicker baskets that my granddad had one and he used to take that to the local shop to buy the bread and the milk and butter and so on. One of those, hooked it over his arm, off he went to the shops. So it's something like that. It wasn't intended to be a major sacrifice, but it was instituted, it was instituted to remind Israel that it was God who had brought them into the promised land and he was the one who ultimately was responsible for the increase that came from the land. So with respect to the firstborn of the flocks, you know, the laws of tithing, of course, stipulated that you had to have an absolutely blemish-free animal for the purposes of um, tithing and that was also the case with sacrifices but here it didn't matter it was just the firstborn no matter how good bad or indifferent that it was and uh, I know that that often today in churches we're told that the first fruit should be your first pay after um, the 30th of June or you know the first pay you get when you get a pay rise and all those kinds of things again read what the Bible says and listen next week and then go and work it through with the Lord. So that's first fruits and firstborn in the Old Testament law. Now I want to address a couple of what I consider to be pretty important scriptures uh, in the Word of God and everyone will be familiar with Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 to 10. I believe it's one of David's favourite passages. Most of us, I dare say, could actually recite it without even opening up the Bible because we've heard it so many times. But I want to talk a little bit about the context of Malachi 3, 8 to 10. We're getting towards the end of the Old Testament here. In fact, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, probably written about 450 years uh, before Jesus was born. Israel had been through a number of, if you, if you like, cycles where, you know, they, they're rescued by God, they decide God is pretty good, so, you know, we're going to follow all his commands and then there was a falling away and time and time again this pattern was repeated where Israel would decide God was a good God and we're going to obey all his commands and then gradually they drifted away. And then 
through some calamity. They decided that God was a good God and we're going to obey his commands. And so they go through these cycles. Despite their history and the many times that God had proven himself to the Israelites, they still wandered from his commands. The book of Malachi was written probably at about the same time as Nehemiah they would have had fresh in their memory the fact that Nehemiah had succeeded in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem and you'd think that they would remember how good was their God but no they'd fallen away yet again the way in which the book of Malachi is written, it is like a conversation between God and somebody else. Now, most scholars who analyse the book of Malachi agree that the conversation almost all the way through is between God and the priests who were leading the people astray. In fact, the priests had contempt for the law. And they were actually leading the people into sin. Both priests and lay people were regularly divorcing their wives and marrying heathen women who practiced idolatry. Now we're not talking here about wives who were doing anything wrong. The priests and, and the men of Israel just decided that the grass was greener on the other side so they dumped their women and went off and married other women you know and God has always said don't marry outside the tribe of Israel don't marry outside because you will bring idol worship into your culture and of course that's exactly what happened time after time after time the third issue that Malachi addressed was the fact that the priests possibly the people but certainly the priests were defrauding God because of the way in which they were neglectful of tithes and offerings and I think it is actually important to note that the complaint that God had was not about tithes only. It was about tithes and offerings. What is the point about Malachi mentioning both tithes and offerings? This is the point. Israel was no longer following the law of God. Tithes isn't the main point. Offerings isn't the main point. The tithes and the offerings were embodied in the law of God. Here we have a people who have walked away from the law of God altogether. They've walked away from the law of God altogether and their society is collapsing. That's what worried Malachi. Now, I, I will um, actually read through those, uh, those famous verses in, in Malachi because then I want to refer right back to Deuteronomy uh, 28 so Malachi 3 verses 8 to 10 
Some commentators say that this part of uh, Malachi chapter 3 is actually a conversation between God and the priests or the Levites. Some say it's between the people, uh, God and the people generally. But those who argue that the conversation is with uh, the Levites or the priests argue that the mention of the word storehouse, whoops, we've lost it, the mention of the word storehouse indicates that the people were actually bringing the tithes but it was the priests who were going into the storehouses and stealing from the tithes that had been brought to the storehouse. But there are many, many different commentators and they don't all agree. But let's read this portion of scripture. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my storehouse. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, if we go back to Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 to 14, I think we get a bit of an inkling of what was being referred to in the passage in Malachi. Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 to 14. The Lord will establish you, that's Israel, as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So these promises of blessing are contingent upon keeping the law of the Lord. And that wasn't happening in Malachi's day. Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens. See the link to Malachi? To give the rain to your land in its season. See the link to Malachi? And to bless all the work of your hand. See the link to Malachi? You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath, if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. So Malachi was trying to convict the people of Israel of their need to go back to the law. He was trying to convict the priests that they must not hold the law of God in contempt and that they above all must be examples that the people could follow. Now I want to turn to some New Testament references to tithing as well. Again, many of us will be familiar with 
these scriptures. You might recall that in Matthew chapter 23, there's a long discourse in which Jesus criticizes the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them a brood of vipers, which back then was one of the greatest insults you could speak over anybody. A brood of vipers. What do vipers do? They bite you. They kill you, right? Because they're poisonous. Jesus criticised the scribes and the Pharisees for the legalistic approach to tithing while neglecting weightier matters of the law, which he nominated as justice, mercy and faith. Now, it's interesting because if you look a little bit earlier in Matthew 23, read verses 1 through 3, you will see that Jesus tells the people to do what the scribes and Pharisees tell them to do, just don't act like they do. Right, Because the scribes and the Pharisees were faithfully representing the law, they just weren't faithfully living it out. So you know that they had a list of clean and unclean animals. They'd strain their tea just in case there might have been a gnat in it because they'd defined the gnat as an unclean animal. They very carefully tithed of their herbs and spices They did all that, but at the same time, they were oppressing the ordinary people because they were taxing them. The ordinary Israelite at this time was actually pretty poor, and yet they were being oppressed by the religious leaders. So Jesus said, do as they say, not as they do. And then he criticises them, not because they tithe, but because they tithed religiously, but totally ignored other areas of the law, particularly those areas that related to looking after those in poverty, those who were oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger who are meant to be catered for by that third tithe. Now, the law would have applied at this time. So Jesus himself, as far as we know, lived according to the law. He probably knew the law pretty well because the people called him rabbi. Now, some argue that he was actually a rabbi again we don't have a lot of biblical evidence to suggest that that is true I mean some people believe that because there's not much recorded about him after he was around 12 years old until he started at ministry that he was actually being trained as a rabbi I don't know about that because there's no biblical evidence to back it up but he was certainly called rabbi because he knew his stuff he was wise even at age 12 Those in the synagogue sat and listened to him in awe. So Jesus was somebody whom people listened to. He almost certainly lived his life according to the law 
And when he remonstrated with the scribes and the Pharisees, he was saying, you must live your life fully in accordance with the law. Now we know that Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And I would suggest that definitely from the point of his resurrection, the new covenant applied. But there's an interesting passage in Luke 16, verse 16, where Jesus says, the law applied or the law held until John, that is John the Baptist. So maybe we could argue about exactly where uh, the new covenant began. But there can be little doubt that Jesus was speaking about the law to people who practiced the law at that time. What about Hebrews 7? Many of us no doubt have heard people speaking about the use of Melchizedek or the references to Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, which takes us right back to that very first tithe recorded in the Word of God, the tithe that Abram, since renamed Abraham, uh, presented to Melchizedek. Now, you really need to read the whole chapter 7, and we obviously don't have time to do that here. But this chapter recalls Abram's tithe to Melchizedek. And the line of argument goes something like this. Jesus is of the same order as Melchizedek. It's referred to as the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. Why is that? Because Melchizedek was priest and king. Jesus, priest and king. Us, priest and king. Right? Aaron, who's also referred to in Hebrews 7, was just a priest. And what Jesus, uh, sorry, not Jesus, we're talking about Paul here. Uh, the writer of Hebrews was saying that there's an order which is higher than an ordinary priest. The Melchizedek order and Jesus, they're both kings and priests, and by the way, so too are we. Then the next argument is that Jesus is a better priest than Melchizedek. Why? Because Jesus comes not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. That is, Jesus was the first resurrected from the dead, the first of many. In that sense, he's a better priest because he was actually born of God through the Virgin Mary. And the final part of the argument is that the law is inferior to the word of oath or to grace since high priests have weaknesses. So ultimately the high priest can never deal with sin but the Son of God can because he has been perfected forever. So I would suggest that Hebrews 7 actually isn't about tithing at all. Hebrews 7 is an argument 
It's an argument as to why it is that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. It's an argument as to why it is that Jesus is a better king and priest than Melchizedek and that both of them are better than Aaron who was priest only and no priest is any good when it comes to salvation from sin because every priest being a human being has weaknesses. Only Jesus Christ has no weaknesses and only Jesus Christ is the son who has been perfected forever. Now I'm sure you have many, many questions in your minds but I'm not going to answer them. Not now because it's Mother's Day and I've talked long enough and I know what awaits us by way of our high tea celebration for Mother's Day. There are brownies, homemade. There are scones, both gluten-full and gluten-free, homemade. There are paleo, health, energy-giving nut and fruit balls, homemade. I think there are Tim Tams, not homemade. There are chrysanthemums, homegrown. And there are also little lavender bouquets. So mums take one and we've got plenty. So even if you're not a mum and you like a little bit of lavender on your pillow to help you sleep, you feel free to take one. So next week, I want to address specifically the issue of tithing for what I would call the post-resurrection Christian. Make sure you're here because this is an unfinished presentation. Last week, we focused on the general principle of generosity. What we've done this week is a somewhat lengthy uh, presentation on tithing as it is presented in the Word of God Next week, I want to try to relate what we've done this week and last week in terms of how we might act as Christians living in this post-resurrection era. So without further ado, why don't we go and enjoy some Mother's Day community time? God bless you.